this up as I go. What are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I need to do this all day. The Matt Sodnicker Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. This is Matt Sodnikar. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate your suggestions for guests and sharing it. It really means a lot. With me today is Thomas Fry. He is the executive director and senior futurist for the Da Vinci Institute. He's been a keynote speaker for companies such as NASA, IBM, AT&T, Ford, just to name a few. He's also spent 15 years as an engineer at IBM. And with that, Thomas, thanks for making the time today. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me on. What type of engineer were you? Because I was a software electrical engineer for a while. Yeah, I, uh, I was a human factors engineer. Okay. So I spent, I spent my time looking at the, the man-machine interface, and, uh, which, which I, uh, I still think of that today as being the biggest failure point for virtually every startup company. Um, as I still use this startup, uh, this um, interface lens to look at the world around us, you know, how, how do we interact with the world around us? And much more recently, I've been focused on kind of how we interface with the future. Um, because the future is coming at us relentlessly, whether we want it to or not. It, um, it's, it's just a, one of the laws of nature. And, and I, I sometimes think about the physics of the future. Um, but we, we really don't have any good tools for how we uh, kind of orient our, our vision and our understanding of the future. So this interface with the future is one of the areas that's woefully lacking. That leads into, I'm going to want to come back to that because that was one of my questions that I've been pondering for the past week to ask you. But the, the first one that I wanted to, to dive into is on a continuum, are you more of an optimist or a pessimist? And in thinking about the future, can you or do you have to be one way or the other or do you have to be neutral? Yeah, see, see that's really a great question because... Um, there are, there are lots of futurists that are very pessimistic about the future. Um, I, I happen to, I don't believe in utopias. I don't think we can ever achieve this utopian state. So um, I also don't think things are as, as dismal or as dystopian as a lot of people think. So uh, I'm somewhere in the middle, but I tend to be more on, on the positive side of the equation. I, th I think that we're going to have tons of problems moving forward, but I think we can move our way into a much better grade of problem sets. Uh, see, if we, if we focus on just solving all the problems, then we have tons and tons of problems today. If we just focus on all the problems, it becomes this whack-a-mole problem because we, we, we end up putting out one problem and another one crops up over here and we put out that one and another one crops up over there. And, so we're, we're not ever going to be able to put out all of the problems. But um, if we advance civilization, we, we change the problem set. We change our perspective on things. And so um, as if we were to, as an example, colonize Mars, 
uh, suddenly that changes our perspective of the universe. It changes our, um, our notion that people only live on one planet. And it gives us a lot more things to think about than just, um, uh, just uh, myopically thinking about the neighborhood around us. So uh, all of these things help give us a new perspective uh, on the world. But uh, I, I tend to fall more on the, on the optimistic side of the equation. I do too. I, one of my favorite books that I've recommended over and over and over is Learned Optimism by Martin Seligman. And I had to, I actually clung to that like a life preserver at one point in my life and just learning how to view the world, not uh, to your point is a utopia, but also sort of that there's things that are good and things that are bad, but generally I think they're pretty good. Yeah. I have to tell you, I took a trip uh, in the middle of the pandemic, uh, late August, came back early September over to Seoul, Korea. So I, f I flew from Denver to Seoul, Korea, and I changed planes at LAX airport. Um, and the, the international terminal at LAX in Los Angeles, uh, man, that was a dystopian ghost town. I mean, that, that um, a lot of the science fiction movies, I mean, you see all of these empty shops, all the chairs turned upside down on tables, on the closed storefronts. And then you look way down the hall and there's just no people. And way down the hall, there's a few people, a little gathering of people there because there's a flight taking off there. Um, it, was, it was such an eerie feeling uh, walking through that. Uh, and it, I came to the conclusion that international travel is not coming back anytime soon. Uh, when you look at all of the checkpoints you have to go through, all the hurdles you have to jump through to cross one border into another country. Um, it is it's not an easy task, and, and uh, nor does anybody want to make it an easy task at this, at this point. And so it's going to take, it's a long recovery time. And, and besides that, people are learning how to do Zoom calls. They're learning how to do things remotely without having to physically be there. Now, I've, I've spent, uh, last, uh, last 20 years, jumping on planes, flying halfway around the world for a one hour talk. Um, I mean, that's uh, kind of the way th things were working up until last year. And, and I made a trip in January to Nigeria and I came back here uh, to Colorado and really uh, not too much since then. So I've, I've done some online talks, but uh, it, it, we're waiting for the whole world to kind of reset, to recalibrate. And, uh, and recalibration, that's kind of my, my word for 2021. <laughs> uh, I think we're trying to recalibrate society, recalibrate science and recalibrate our thinking. Um, yeah, it's uh, the, 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 old, uh, the old mores, the old standards just don't apply anymore. Do you miss the travel? As for 20 years, is it something that you looked forward to like do you miss the adventure um uh in yeah i i love meeting new people i love um going to other countries i, I love the adventure nature of it learning about different cultures just picking up these little snippets of information about this this group of people here or this group of people there that's hugely valuable and it entered 
uh, it, it changes your thinking about the world and how everything's working. Um, I, I really do miss that. Uh, on the same token, though, uh, doing a virtual talk and saving all of those countless hours in airports and waiting around and uh, jumping in the cattle car airplanes and being hauled to some foreign country. Um, yeah, I don't, uh, there's, there's a lot of parts that I don't miss. So it's, it's really a trade-off. And so I try to make the best of whatever situation I have to be in. That's the optimism coming through. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Except accepting the circumstances, right? It, the difference between uh, an anchor problem and a gravity problem, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, that's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. I wish I came up with that. That's not me. That was from a book called Designing Your Life. So they were talking oh. about um, just viewing circumstances. And the gravity problem is defined as something that you cannot change, i.e. gravity or an anchor problem that you could disconnect from or change or untether from. So it's a little binary, I think, in terms of looking at problems in life, but in terms yeah. of like the first pass through analysis, it tends to, it's like, well, <laughs> will this ever be changed <laughs> or, yeah. you know, can it be changed? So. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's a lot of things that are pretty binary in, in life. So see with the first time I, I ever heard um, Captain Kirk on Star Trek use the phrase, set your phasers to stun, then everybody naturally thought, oh, there's two settings, the stun and the kill. But then I started thinking, hmm, you know, there could actually be like 10 other settings on there. Um, you know, make them laugh uncontrollably, make them feel extreme empathy, um, uh, make them just crumble or just uh, disarm this person totally. You know, there's, there's lots of other settings on there that are a possibility. And, and so much of what we do in life is, is very binary, like, like you said, that uh, this way or that way. And it makes, makes for easy reading in a book. And, but the reality is there's, there's tons of gray areas that um, are, are not as easy to, to sort through. And, and that's, that's when you look at the future too. You just, it, it's not going to be all of this thing or all of that thing. It will be marginally more of this and marginally less of that. And, uh, you know, that we, we run into that a lot when we get into this whole topic of jobs going away because everybody thinks that, well, artificial intelligence, robotics, the reality is, is they never eliminate an entire job completely. They, they eliminate tasks. And so, um, as an example, if you were a meter reader and you went out and were reading the water meter and the electric meter on houses and commercial buildings, uh, once that information starts flowing in wirelessly, then, uh, then you don't have to have people that go out and physically read those, those dials on those, uh, those meters. Uh, so the, the meter readers, however, did a lot more things other, besides just driving out and reading those meters. Uh, so the job doesn't completely go away. Naturally, it can be done with fewer people, 
but the job itself doesn't completely go away. The only job that's been completely eliminated with automation um, over the last uh, 60, 70 years has been that of the elevator operator. Um, we pretty much don't need elevator operators anymore, although there's in some high security buildings, we still have them. But, uh, uh, but anyway, this, this, this notion that we're going to implement all this technology and suddenly we don't need all, any people to do anything, uh, that's pretty far-fetched. Um, so we're, we're going to be using relatively fewer people. Same time, all of this technology is giving us more capabilities. And so this additional capabilities will enable us to create far more startup businesses, far more startup industries. And that's where all of the new employment happens. These, uh, these startup ventures that are happening right and left all around us, that's where the fun stuff is taking place today. Well, at the very least with AI and machine learning and um, <clears throat> the bots and everything else, the human in the loop probably still has to plug the thing in <laughs> at the very least. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. But if you, if you take the idea, and this is a, a real life example, I mean, this idea of automating truck drivers out of existence. Um, now it's it's relatively easy to create an autopilot for a truck to just drive down the interstate um, and to to go to uh, all the way across the country spend 10 hours on the road 20 hours on the road but once it gets somewhere then you have to coordinate well which dock door should it be at and should it wait in a queue for a while before it can move forward and move forward again and and who's taking care of all of that and then this idea of lining up the load and coordinating the delivery uh, all of those things take some human effort that's the, those are the pieces that are really messy to automate that's the um, kind of the quote-unquote last mile stuff that uh, is really hard to to get it to a hundred percent and so we're still going to have a lot of people working trying to um, kind of fill the gaps in those those pieces so while we can eliminate lots of the time that uh, is spent on the road it, it, we're not eliminating a hundred percent of it um, and, and so that's the same with lots of other driving positions as well now, that said, we do have cases now where in China we have fully autonomous cars picking people up and dropping them off in, in, in different parts of the United States and San Francisco and, and Phoenix and, and some other places without any human drivers there. We already have these pilot projects in place that are, are working their way through all the problems. Now, we're still a long ways from uh, perfection. But, uh, but it's also very likely that it's better than human drivers already. Uh, so that was actually a pretty low bar. I mean, human, human drivers are, are not the most reliable. Uh, and, and as soon as we got texting, they've become even less reliable. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's such a coincidence you bring up the last mile on the transportation. I had lunch two weeks ago with somebody from Outrider here in Golden and their autonomous yard operations. So using um, AI enabled autonomous trucks in the, the, the literally the last 
you know, quarter mile within the yard operations. And I was just curious about the, as a salesperson, just the resistance they would get back if it was like a union issue or if it was the perception that there were jobs being eliminated, but they were saying that they have such a high turnover rate, about 30% turnover. And then um, it's like a six to one uh, discrepancy in openings versus employment. So it's underserved simply from even the humans that from the talent pool. And it was just uh, just a fascinating thing that, again, going super granular on a solution or a problem that, oh, yeah, you know, we pass semi trucks on the highway all the time. But what do they do when they get to their destination? And so they've spun this startup up that's fascinating in, in that. So it's it a cool, co- cool coincidence that you brought that up. Yeah, the, the number of trucks on the road continues to go up. Um, as consumers, we're not consuming less. We, uh, <clears throat> um, you know, there's been all this push to save the environment and everything, but it it really is falling on deaf ears for the most part because we're we're buying more stuff, and that that stuff all has to be delivered, and and only a very tiny percentage is being delivered by trains anymore. Uh, and so the trucks are taking everything across the country. So the, the demand for truck drivers has been going up and up and up for years. And so anything that can be done to, to slow that down, that, uh, that's the, the industry is, is really looking for that because they can't hire enough truck drivers. Um, and that's been such, such a challenge. And, and the truck driver lifestyle, you know, that's not for everybody. Uh, eating, eating at truck stops and just being on the road away from your family for days on end. Uh, yeah, if there's a lot of people that would, would just say no to that. But uh, um, so it's not going to make a huge dent right away. But uh, the, the industry is looking for, for ways of, of uh, doing it much more efficiently and being able to I mean, just send this truck down the road for the next 20 hours without a driver in it. Uh, you know, that, that's a way faster. But when you have a human driver, then you have all these rules you have to comply with. You have to, you have to comply with uh, uh, so many stops and so many eating hours and sleeping hours and all of that. And, uh, and, that's, uh, and nobody has to uh, pay attention to that when it's all robotically done. Um, but it's going to take many years to, to get to anything that's even close to 100% fully automated. And, uh, but it, it'll be fascinating to kind of watch this whole, whole thing unfold. Um, you, usually we see the headlines. We see the headlines that say that, that these trucks made this first fully auto, autonomous delivery. Well, that's not the full story. And it's the first one. And it was crude. And, uh, yeah, and we're glossing over a lot of the details in the background. And, and so, uh, yeah, it's, we're, we're a long ways from having a, a, a complete industry that's being overthrown by robots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When, uh, when Google voice or okay, Google actually gets it right more than half the time, then I'll be worried about the bots taking over. But until then I'm not <laughs> too worried about it. <laughs> yeah. See, even even OCR, 
optical character recognition is not 100%. Um, so, so that's interesting to keep that in mind because that's a relatively simple task. I mean, just this reading of characters on a page and, and uh, recognizing what those are, having a computer that can do that, it's still not 100%. And so uh, if we can't even do something as simple as that, then something that's relatively complicated, like driving trucks, um, we're, we've got a long ways to go. So um, as, as humans, we have the ability to, uh, you know, our mind adjusts very quickly. It adapts to different situations. It, uh, it can recognize patterns. And, and, and when you hear about a computer that can beat the world chess champion or a computer that can beat the AlphaGo champion or the, the Jeopardy champions. You know, it's, it's focused on this extremely little narrow activity. Um, it hasn't taught itself how to get up in the morning, how to brush teeth, how to comb its hair, how to take a shower, how to pick out the right clothes to wear. You know, as humans, we've, we've adapted to a gazillion different little uh, details in our lives and that's that's not something that uh, computers are good at doing just yet uh, maybe we'll get there sometime in the future but uh, we're still a long ways from that one of the things that kept me up at night as a software engineer was the the failure modes the FMEA the failure modes effect analysis that we had to do and when you're talking about the OCR I remember seeing something on on Reddit that some uh, some engineers had tricked a Tesla because they took some black duct tape and went to the speed limit sign and changed one of the digits. So the car accelerated and I don't, I don't, I think it, hopefully it was a controlled environment. I don't remember much more of the story about that. Yeah. But if the software failed, then it was an edge case that because computers are dumb tools that have to be taught, then there was an edge case where, oh, well, clearly I didn't think about, you know, this geography, the speed limit went from 30 to 60 or whatever they changed the numbers to. So it was just an edge case that wasn't analyzed by humans. And that would always keep me up at night going, did I think, what else, what else could go wrong? What could I think of? <laughs> yeah. So if you, if you think about college students wanting to play pranks on driverless cars, taking a barrel full of ping pong balls up onto an overpass and just dumping them down onto the highway in front of a car. What would a driverless car do with that? And then, I mean, once you think through that scenario, then there's, there's like uh, a million other variations of that, that the, the college kids are pretty ingenious in how they want to uh, trip things up. And, and so maybe that's just something for their YouTube channel or, uh, something to impress their friends, but it's, uh, we're, we're going to see this, this crazy crap like that happen. And, uh, and, and so it's going to be quite, quite the interesting new environment we're moving into. Definitely. I wanted to go back. You'd mentioned, um, cars and cell phones and texting. And one of the things I wanted to cover with you was unintended consequences of design or technology or solutions and is that something that can be trained when new things are created like how far would you have to look to 
be Steve Jobs and the iPhone, the first iPhone, and understand the impact that it would have on a car? How how would you cultivate that as a designer? Yeah, see, that's 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 really tricky because <clears throat> um, as a human factors engineer, what I would do is I would look at you know the micro environments and then the the next larger environments and larger and larger and larger, you know, and and uh, uh, so you think of the phone as just a network itself, and then you think of it being run by a human being and your human body is uh, is a little bit larger network and the the house that your body and your phone are in that's a little bit larger network mm. and then you you look at the the neighborhood or community or even the city that you're in and then your state and then your country and then in, in each of these um, you you look at how it affects each of those growing spheres of uh, connections and connectivity, it's um, there. It's revealing, but invariably you're going to get it wrong. You're you're going to get it wrong because uh, there's there's too many variables in play, uh, and uh, and so we 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 simply don't have the ability to analyze every single possibility, every every possible scenario that's coming out of it, and and so when you look at the this notion of the the you know the butterfly wings flapping on one side of the world causing a hurricane you know three weeks later on the other side um, we, we we simply can't go to that level of detail and um, and and that's what is going to keep life interesting for us because it's not possible to know all the things that are happening <laughs> I heard the, the automobile described on another podcast in the the person that was presenting this concept was acting as a salesperson. He said, all right, I've got this amazing idea for you. It's going to allow you to go anywhere you want, carry your stuff, transport your, your friends, you get to travel, but there's a minor downside. It's going to kill 45,000 people a year. <laughs> Do you still want to buy it? <laughs> and I just, and I heard that and I just was like, Oh, yeah. Okay. And I think humans just compartmentalize because you see an accident on the highway. It's one tiny dot in all that. And so it just cumul cumulatively doesn't affect us the same way that other disasters do. But it's just, again, going back to the unintended consequences of the, the vehicles. Right. Right. There's, um, well, there's a lot of moving pieces to the whole equation. Uh, so you think about in 1850, the average transportation speed in the United States was four miles an hour. People walking, a uh, few riding horses, but for the most part, we we're just commuting by walking from one place to another. Um, by, by 1900, that it, it had doubled, it gone up to uh, eight miles an hour. There's a lot more trains. There's a few cars in, and so, and then by uh, by 1950, because there were so many more cars, and it actually uh, tripled. So we went to the average speed of 24 miles an hour. That's in 1950, and that wasn't all that that long ago, and it wasn't all that fast. Um, but then, uh, 
in 2000, because so many people were flying, it jumped up all the way to 75 miles an hour as average transportation speed. Now, if you follow that trajectory, then by 2050, the average transportation speed should be around 225, you know, 230 miles an hour. And, um, and then you start asking the question, well, how do we get there? And as the number of plane flights kept going up and up and up every day, it seemed like we're definitely on the track for getting there. But uh, now we've taken a step back. And so we're, we're, we're reanalyzing all of that. So will we achieve a 225 mile an hour average commute speed in 2050? Well, maybe. That's still a long ways off, so <laughs> still too early to tell. <laughs> well, <clears throat> the next question I had, and I'm, su- I'm I'm really excited that you have the human factor experience because uh, I've been trying to articulate this question to ask it succinctly. Um, in terms of humans interacting with devices, so typewriters or even going back to cave walls, right? Scratching with burnt sticks or whatever. And when I was in school, I was taught that the two limiting factors were keyboards and batteries for functionality of devices. And as we've progressed from say like the, the printing press to typewriters, to keyboards, to cell phones, do you see in the future a possibility that perhaps the alphabet could change because devices in the need for efficiency, the, the way that, and I, I type with my thumbs on my cell phone and it's frustrating. And I'll, I even have like an app on my browser that I can text through the browser because I'm simply faster with a keyboard. Do you see yeah. years down the road, 10, 50, 1,000 years down the road with technology that perhaps the alphabet could change because of the limitations of input? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. Let me let me take you back into history. Um, if Please. you go back into the into the time of the ancient Greeks, um, we had several famous Greek mathematicians, people like Archimedes, Pythagoras, Euclid. We had a number of famous Greek mathematicians. Now, when the Romans came along, we did not have any famous Roman mathematicians, and it wasn't because the the Romans were somehow not as bright as the Greeks. Um, because they absolutely were, but it was because of the system they were using, Roman numerals. Now, there, in defense of the Romans, they, there happened to be a lot of terrible numbering systems back then. But the reason that Roman numerals was such an inferior system is we didn't have the ones, the tens, the hundreds, the thousands, the different columns. And so that prevented them from doing any higher math. And so, you have to understand that this was a system problem. It was a system of numbers that uh, a numbering system that actually prevented an entire society for hundreds of, of centuries uh, for, for many centuries from doing any higher math. And so I love to ask this question of what systems do we use today that are the equivalent of Roman numerals that are preventing us from doing great things. And, and then for that matter is the, the numbering system that we're using today, is that the ideal way of doing things? Is there something better? And, and when it comes to the alphabet, we need to ask the exact same question. Um, could we have a more efficient alphabet? I think absolutely. 
Uh, in fact, moving forward, uh, I keep asking this question, you know, 50 years from now, will we still have the need to read and write? I mean, if everything can be presented to you audially um, and visually, do we still have the need to read and write? Is there a faster way to send and receive information? Uh, and what's that gonna look like? And, and so it, this raises all kinds of uh, absolutely fascinating questions. And I'd, I'd like to give you one more example here, which uh, the calendar we use today is actually quite preposterous. Uh, it's just kind of this random grouping of days and it, it, for no reason. I mean, it just happens to be uh, the number of days it takes to get around the earth. And so it's, and, and for some reason we have February. We have February with 28 days and, and then the rest of them either have 30 or 31. Now, if we made every month just 28 days, we could actually create a 13 month calendar each month would have 28 days. And that works out to 364 days. And then we could have one extra day that we throw in as just New Year's Day, and it wouldn't fit in any month. And then, uh, and then that would be a much more logical way of running the Earth with a 13-month calendar. Now, there's some challenges to doing that because we would have to reassign all of the holidays. And, uh, but let's say... The first of the month started on, on a Sunday, and, uh, and, and so every day of the week, would uh, every month would consistently start with a Sunday, uh, the first of the month. Then every 20th of the month would be a Friday, and we would know that. If, if you say the 20th, oh, that's a Friday, okay. Um, and, and so it's much more logical in so many different ways. Um, but even things like, knowing when your birthday is and we have to do some sort of a calculation to figure out, okay, well, we'll celebrate my birthday on this, this particular day, uh, because, because everything kind of changes. <laughs> so, so will we switch to a 13 month calendar in the future? Probably not. Uh, because this is so ingrained in society to actually change something that is that major in society would just be, um, seemingly overwhelming. Um, but, uh, but the question you're asking though about the alphabet, is there something better? There's almost always something better. There's almost always a better system, a better way of doing things. Um, we just haven't looked at it intensely enough and very likely we may not be willing to make a change to make it happen either. So, <laughs> but those are the questions I think you need to continue to ask because I think that's so important about how how society is is changing. So put on this this new lens and look at the world through a system lens and, and say, okay, is is this the best way to do things, or is there a better way? <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing because as you're talking about it, the things I think about, the problem I always think about, and I'm picturing like you and me in a Simpsons cartoon and our thought bubbles are popping out and you're thinking about the 13 month calendar and then the inputs and the alphabet changing. And I'm thinking about 
man, why do we still have windshield wipers? Like, <laughs> so, so I'm, I'm like a, I'm like a, a junior science club futurist. And it's just like, I'm, I'm so uh, just impressed and amused by the difference in what you and I are thinking about in terms of the future. I feel like I have training wheels on my brain, but it's still, it's fun. It's a great conversation. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, when it comes to the future, there's no there's no limit to all of the the nuances of of how things are unfolding. Um, so, see, I like to I like to ask these questions about you know where does the future come from? I mean, is it being somehow staged uh, and you know 100 frames per second somewhere out there, and then suddenly we experience it, and then and then once it becomes the present, where does it go? after that i mean so so we've experienced this this new future and and then it just disappears as you go into some graveyard or some junkyard over here for uh reality past or something and uh yeah it's it, so i i play all these weird mind games to try to <laughs> and there's probably no good analogies for any of this but uh, uh that's that's the the crazy world i live in <laughs> Well, and I think as a as an inventor, and, and not speaking about myself, just like the general inventor or the imagineer or product designer, I think at the core, you have to have imagination, but it also ties back to one of my first questions about being an optimist, because you have to believe that your idea somehow, some way is going to work, and it may not be the exact first design or first iteration, but if you're imagining this and you say it's never going to work, then that's not how things progress. And I think on, on that, at least, you know, I, I think, I don't know if those two ideas could exist in opposition. Right. Right. Um, yeah. We, in the past, we've had too many people, you know, just uh, trash your ideas and say, no, that'll never work next. Um, you know, and then, then move on from there. We just, in, in like three seconds, we've taken an idea that somebody might have spent the last uh, 150 hours working on and we just scraped it off the table, thrown it in the trash and uh, we belittled it to the point where nobody wants to actually think about it ever again. Um, I, I think we're getting past that. I don't think we're, we're going to be in that same era of uh, doing that moving moving forward because we, we've seen time and time again uh, um, these seemingly bad ideas from the past actually uh, uh, get resurrected and they turn into something that's actually quite beautiful and something that actually works. I just wish people could embrace that failure is not bad and nothing survives the first um, trial startup that it's just yeah. you have that's, to your prototype's going to be ugly it's not going to work. That's that's one of the stories about Bill Gates is whenever somebody would come in and pitch him on some new idea, the, the, the thing that he would always say is, wow, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And using a few expletives to, uh, to say that with a lot of emphasis. And then people over time got to understand that that's just his initial way of, of kind of uh, separating the wheat from the chaff, so to speak, and uh, 
and sorting through. And, and so people that were thoroughly convinced that they had a great idea would, would argue it again and again and again and come at it from lots of different angles until they proved themselves right. And so that's how he, uh, uh, kind of the way that the best ideas rose to the top. But that was his approach to doing things. So it was uh, rather colorful and, <laughs> and I'm not sure it's the best way of doing things, but that was his way of doing things. So. <laughs> well, it's a valid test as you've described it because the idea has to be pressure tested. And then I'm sure he was also pressure testing the designer's commitment to it and their their passion and how far they're willing to take it. Right. Uh, you know, how, how thoroughly have you thought through this idea? Because every, every new idea is going to meet lots of obstacles. You're going to have lots of barriers you have to cross and hurdles you have to jump. And uh, if you don't think through a lot of those up front, you're uh, it's just not going to make it. So, yeah, so that you're right. Pressure testing it and, um, throwing a lot of obstacles in the way. Yeah, that, that works for some people. <laughs> other ones, other ones will take an idea like that and they'll, they'll brainstorm it and build on it, build on it, build on it until it actually turns into something that's really good. I, I, myself, I tend to prefer that approach as opposed to trash talking people and, uh, belittling them. But, uh, that, that's the different personalities. I had to learn over the course of my, I guess my second growth phase as an adult, going through some challenging times that people that were critical are not necessarily <clears throat> pessimistic or, um, and, and I actually seek out dissent now from people that are detail oriented or have more experience. And it took me a long time to realize that their criticism was not a personal attack. And I had to learn that they're in their own special way, helping fully bake my ideas and helping me with the edge cases. Like, Hey, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Like, Oh, and understanding that I'm the front end imaginative designer and my skill set falls off on the other end and implementation and things like that, that those people are really is, trying to help me. And it is so hard not to take it personally. Because uh, this is your baby. This is your idea. You spend, you've invested a whole bunch of time and energy into it, and you think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And and then somebody trash talks it. Ah, how can they do that? I think I'm going to go crawl under under the bed and hibernate for the next. <laughs> <laughs> I will never do that again. You know that. Uh, but that's where that's where the resilient people. The, the very resourceful people, that's where they, they will shine. And, uh, and, and so those are the, the most valuable skills moving into the future are, are the, the people that are, that are going to be resourceful and resilient and, and flexible and being able, very determined to make things happen. Um, and those are the hardest skills to teach somebody in in any academic setting anyway. So I think we'll, we'll, we'll have to figure out new ways of training people with those skills. <laughs> I totally agree. Um, <clears throat> going back to the optimism and pessimism and taking a look at fear, and this is not meant to be a, 
uh, political question or social media question, but throughout history, people have been afraid of either technology or the future. There's been witchcraft and the printing press was evil, television, rock and roll, handheld devices. And <clears throat> my question is, is it just that population set? There's always going to be people that are resistant to change, but where do you think that fear of technology in whatever capacity it was or the future stems from? When I, when I was a kid growing up, I would see, you know, the color, the cover of popular science magazine. I would see stuff coming out of bell labs and the future was just amazing. We couldn't wait for it to happen. This is, Oh, all of, you know, whether I was watching Flash Gordon or some of the, uh, the Jetsons, you know, this is exciting stuff. And I, and I thought, oh, man, this is the greatest thing ever. I can't wait to get into the future. Now, if you ask the average kid today on the street about the future, oh, it's going to be more pandemics and more unemployment. We're, we're going to have more disease and overthrowing governments and all of that. And and it's it's we've we've actually done a, a really bad job. I think we've done a disservice to society by by trash talking the future so much, and um, and the the news media as a whole has um, they they have a vested interest in selling fear because fear mm -hmm. attracts eyeballs, um, and so I think we need to get back past that. I, I I love the idea of making the future fun again. Um, I, I think we need to, the future is neither going to be as bad as some people think or as good as other people think. It's somewhere in between, but I, I think we need to uh, paint a, a much better picture of the world ahead because it has that potential, it has that possibility. And, um, and so uh, how do we do that? I mean, it's, it becomes a really overarching question that in, in the talks that I do, I want to be on the positive side of the equation. I want to talk about fun things that we can do in the future. Um, and I mean, just jumping into a car uh, in the future, uh, having a conversation with that car, telling it where we want to go and who we want to pick up along the way. And, um, and it's, it's actually asking us how our day was. And so we have this, human to car interaction that is is very positive it's enjoyable um and and the car is making sure that nothing goes wrong but it, and in the middle of it the car might be trying to get us to stop at a coffee shop along the way because somebody paid for that placement service that coffee shop to recommend it to us um but uh, but then we can we can sit back and watch watch television or play video games for the next 10, 12 hours, you know, going from the Denver, Denver to Chicago or Denver to Dallas or Denver to uh, San Francisco, we could just jump in a car, you know, we could summon a car within, within five minutes and that car is there. We just jump in and take off. And it's a very relaxing trip. It travels all night. We're sleeping lots of the time. We can lay back and relax that seems like a way better way of doing things rather than, you know, driving to a hectic airport and going through security and, and waiting around till they cattle prod you into the, the next plane. <laughs> and, and then, 
then you get off and you have to find transportation on the other end and all that. So um, I, th I think the, the driverless world eliminates lots of the short haul flights. Um, I, I would I can't love it. Yeah, I can't help but think that that would take place. So, uh, so how long till that happens? I mean, that's, that's the magical question. I mean, uh, I, I would actually love to be able to just jump in a car and drive to South America. Uh, except we have this this little nasty Darien Gap down there. It's about 25 miles of uh, that never got finished on the Pan American Highway between Panama and Colombia. Um, and I I'm not sure why that never got completed. It seems like it could be bridged around through the ocean. There, it's a environmentally sensitive area. There's a little mountain in uh. in the way. Um, but that's no bigger than most of the other obstacles that we've overcome with highways. So, um, so uh, how long before we can do things like that? I'm not sure, uh, but uh, I th it's, it's not that far away. I think it'll happen within my lifetime. I would love that. It could be even of um, getting back to Route 66 and back in the, you know, early days of American highways where you could have the barbecue tour from here to Chicago. So you have you know, scheduled stops and you could make it that, all right, I want the best pastry and the best coffee shop along the way. And then I want to have a barbecue experience or Mexican food experience. I, I would love that. <laughs> Driving to me is just, I, it's inefficient for me because I would, yeah, if I can listen to a podcast or an audiobook, then it takes some of the um, tedium out of it. But I'd much rather be reading a book or you know, writing some notes or something while I'm in the car. It's just it, I'm forced to not really do anything. Right, right. It it consumes way too much of your time or your 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 time and attention. Um, yeah, the. Uh, <laughs> You know, the first time I listened to an audio book, I thought, wow, this is cheating. I thought, wow, this is way too easy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but th then, you know, I, I took this, uh, took, took it apart a little bit in my head. You know, that this idea of reading is the idea of taking characters on a page and turning them into mental concepts and images. Um, listening to an audio book is a little different process. You're taking audio sounds and turning them into mental concepts and images. But however you get the information in your head shouldn't really matter. Um, so what's the most efficient way to, to get information in your head? And, and from a human interface standpoint, um, I, I use this analogy quite a bit that, you know, 20, 25 years ago, somebody hands you a, a sheet of really tough questions and your resource was a library. You'd go into the library, you'd go through the card catalogs and you'd go through all the reference books and everything and you look up all the answers and it could very well take you 10 hours. Now today, using a computer and a keyboard, uh, doing searches on all of these things, it could only be reduced down to maybe just 10 minutes. So going from 10 hours to 10 minutes. Well, the next iter iteration of this is a 10 second interface. So how do we take all this vast uh, universe of knowledge that's out there in the internet and make it more seamless and invisible for our heads so that somebody asks us a question 
in within 10 seconds that we can think our way through to an answer and grab onto that and then we have it right then and there. Um, now there's people already working on that, um, but we haven't achieved it just yet. But I'm, I'm, uh, I'm anxious. I want to see it happen. I want to see the 10 second interface uh, because, it, well, it just seems like life would be easier uh, when, I, when I can have information just, you know, at my fingertips just that quickly. I've worked to <clears throat> reach for Google as a last resort. I've actually tried to improve my memory and decide if something is trivia that if I look it up, am I going to need this fact or do I really care? Or if, um, I remember talking to somebody about this the other day. It was like, there was, we were talking about books and there was a book that I was recommended and I couldn't think of it. Couldn't th and I tried to read it like three or four times, couldn't get through it. And it's like, wait, there was an X in it. There was a Z as I kept telling it. And um, it was Zorba the Greek. And so okay. the, I just, again, it just didn't resonate with me. But rather than like reaching for my phone where I may have had it on a book list or reach for Google, I've tried to break that dependency on Google as like the trivia game where it's yeah. like, what's, what's in my memory? It, it's a lot different than what you're talking about, but still going maybe against technology, but just trying to improve the computer that's in my skull. Right, right. Um, so so what's, what's the fastest way to think your way through to that? It, <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, if you can figure that out. Um, uh, so I, I get asked this question a lot. Uh, how long before meeting somebody um, virtually is as good as meeting somebody in person? Um, this becomes kind of a litmus test of where we're at today because uh, we're, we have lots of virtual meetings, Zoom calls and everything. We even have telepresence rooms that it just about feels like you're in the same room with somebody else. But it's still not as good. I mean, you're, you're going to miss out on a lot of the body language, you know, just little visual cues like that, maybe that little bead of sweat forming on somebody's forehead or the sidebar conversations happening over in the corner of the room. Uh, things happen before and after, you know, just you know, kind of how you hold yourself one way or another. And it's still not quite as good. And I finally came to the conclusion that once it's as good as being there in person, we're still not going to go there. So somehow meeting somebody virtually has to be better than meeting somebody in person. And then, and then you ask that question, well, what constitutes better? And, and, and again, I think if you, can, if you can answer that, if you can come up with all the, the pieces to that, that question, I, I think somebody's going to hand you the keys to the kingdom. You can do an IPO on that and be an instant billionaire. You can be the latest <laughs> unicorn there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'll be like Zoom on steroids, so so to speak. <laughs> yeah. Well, and when we, before we started recording, uh, I was mentioning that when I would do remote podcasts uh, last year, <clears throat> I would turn the camera off because I felt it was distracting. And then after working from home in a distributed environment and using Zoom and then the pandemic, I actually have started leaving the camera on and it's actually enhanced the experience for me because it felt more personal and more intimate. Right. 
Right. And like how long I've, I've been able to, again, because I'm driven by relationships and I love people and meeting people that, you know, for me within like 30 or 45 seconds, I feel that with certain people I've built a rapport. And so, um, see what's been, what's been really tricky is for a lot of companies, they've, they've switched to having all their staff and employees working from home and in all of the management schools out there, nobody has taught people how to manage uh, a group of people remotely or Mm. they haven't taught, they haven't taught them well. And, and so uh, how do you, it's a different management style that takes different tools, different mindsets. Um, you know, if, if there's some ex- expectation that you have to be rigidly in your seat at a specific time every day. So if you happen to get a random phone call that you're there to take it, that's, that's a whole different expectation than, than uh, just uh, accomplishing a quantified amount of work during a, a specific time time frame well you you working as as a programmer uh you're probably adapted to this way better than than most people are but uh yeah my my son actually works for a company that and he is managing programmers all over the world and so it's constant zoom calls and and he has to be very aware of what time zone they happen to be in and and so it's uh he's he's figured out a lot of the new tools that are needed to make that happen um but see there's advantages and disadvantages you know being in the same room with people you feel the energy you feel uh the camaraderie the you know kind of the the whole sense of purpose gets conveyed um uh, when you're all grouped together um but uh doing things remotely then that annoying thing that somebody would do that they never took a shower for the last three days. You don't really care about that. Um, or they, they play loud rap music, you know, uh, in the background. Yeah. You don't care about that anymore. Um, it, uh, uh, so there's, there's definitely pluses and minuses as we're making this transition. Or, excuse me, we're coming up on the, the hour point and I definitely want to be respectful of your time. And I just want to say that the, the thought exercise and preparation for talking to you was so enjoyable. Like I found myself looking out the window a lot and kind of walking around just pondering things. And it was a very... Well, that's what I do. That's what I do too. <laughs> Are you hiring? <laughs> do you need an assistant? <laughs> uh, but... And then the conversation uh, definitely was rewarding too. So it was just so much fun to finally meet. And then just to, uh, I love theoretical positive discussions like this. So I want to just say thanks for making the time. It's been absolutely great. Well, th- this is terrific. Yeah. I, um, I, I'm usually off in my own little world, um, you know, just playing with, with concepts that nobody cares about or, will ever care about in the future but sometimes that leads to other things that are much more important um and uh i i I get this from a lot of people and being a futurist that's like the coolest job ever and i i happen to think it is um (laughs) it's it's actually a a pretty small community of those of us who are actually making a full-time living doing it and um i i feel uh 
kind of honored to be part of that uh, exclusive group that's doing that. So, um, yeah, I, but in the world today, as, as always, you constantly have to push yourself farther. And I think that that's, that's really important. So never, never sit back and think, oh, I'm there. I've, I've, I've finished my education, which is the biggest lie ever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I finally accomplished it. You know, I no longer have to work anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Retirement's a failed concept anyway, but that's, that's a whole nother discussion. <laughs> <laughs> I'll include uh, uh, contact information and links, but where can people connect with you to have um, either the Da Vinci Institute or with you personally? Um, if you go to futuristspeaker.com, that's, um, uh, I post all of my papers that I write on, on our, our blog on futuristspeaker.com. Um, our podcasts are on uh, futuratipodcast.com. Um, we're, we have lots of the stuff we're working on on davinciinstitute.com. Uh, so if you go to any of those three sites that uh, you'll find out probably a lot more than you want to know about. So, uh, <laughs> so we're, we're constantly monitoring all of the, the, the cues about the future and how things are changing. And uh, this has been uh, uh, a fascinating year. If, if you weren't participating in it, it's a fascinating one to watch, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a little rougher if you're a participant. So. <laughs> but uh, yeah, for all the people listening to this, uh, thank you for tuning in. I mean, I, I feel honored every time I get a chance to do some, one of these uh, discussions. Um, I, I hope you picked up a few things. I always learn something just from talking to other people. So uh, it's a, quite the honor for me. Well, consider having an open invite anytime you'd like to discuss uh, anything more. Just let me know. I'm happy to do as many episodes. It's just, it's been enjoyable for me too, Thomas. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks for having me on. Episodes of this podcast are produced and written by me, Matt Sodnikar. The intro was engineered by good friend Cole Weinman. And our original score theme song, Retro Funk, was composed by previous guest and good friend Randy Wiafe. I also have two requests. If you like this show, please share it with a friend who you think might like it. And also take the time to show them how to listen to a podcast, either on Apple, Transistor, or Spotify. And I know you know somebody out there that would make a fantastic guest. And if you do please shoot me an email to podcast at thewarmfront.com. Thanks for listening.